You are listening to the Missio Tempe podcast. We are a church of missional communities, living as a family of missionary servants for the good of our city. For more information about our church, visit missiotempe.com. We hope this teaching encourages and challenges you to faithfully take up your role in the Missio Day. Today, we're going to be talking about the joyful topic of suffering. So, let's dive in. Growing up, I was an only child. Any only children in the room? Until the age of seven. Sorry, I probably should have said that. Until the age of seven. But basically, that's, you know, when a lot of early on, that's when a lot of you is formed in your worldview and your understanding of things. So I feel like a lot of ways I operate like an only child. Uh, But as the oldest child, naturally, I didn't really have any siblings to look up to until my younger brother was born when I was seven. But I was fortunate enough to grow up next door to my twin cousins, who were nine years older than me. So they were in high school when I was three, four, five years old. And in many ways, they were like the older siblings that I never had. Uh, When they were in junior high, a popular book series began to be released uh, by the now famous author J.K. Rowling. My cousin's obsession with the series er, and, and the influence they had on me led me also to immerse myself in the fantasy world of Harry Potter. The books became a staple classic in our household and still bond us together today. One of my cousins lives in Norway, and this summer when we were visiting her, uh, that was, those memories were still the things that we bonded over, reading the Harry Potter books, watching the movies. I remember my cousins dragging me around to the midnight showings, and even at one point, we tried to recreate the movies with like an old video camera. And those files are still somewhere out there. I don't know where. But the famous Harry Potter series tells the story of a hidden magic world that is infiltrated by evil represented in a powerful dark wizard named Voldemort. Early on, we're introduced to the Orphan Harry, who mysteriously escaped death in the attack of Voldemort, despite his parents' tragic death in the process. Harry becomes known as the boy who lived, and the rest of the saga follows his journey of defeating Voldemort once and for all. The books drag you through the ups and downs of this narrative, and Voldemort and all his evil is eventually defeated, but not in the way you would expect. In the wizarding world, sacrificial protection was the most powerful form of magic, and in any situation could counter any spell. You see, the reason Harry could survive Voldemort's attack was because his mother, Lily, sacrificed herself for him that night. Lily's protection of Harry created this powerful form of magic that resided in him till the very end. The whole story of Harry Potter, in a sense, is about how this powerful form of suffering love became the means by which this dark evil was triumphed forever. While fiction, yes, the resolution to the story of Harry Potter is oddly similar to that of the story of the Bible, which tells the epic narrative of a God whose restoration of the whole world and defeat of evil is accomplished through his own sacrificial act of suffering love. And then the pattern set forth in motion all throughout the scriptures is that the restoration mission of his whole world is going to be accomplished through suffering love, first and finally through God himself, but then alongside the participation of his people who are invited to be just like him. And so over the last seven weeks, we've been diving into this book of Ephesians, 
We started with an introduction that invited us to see the whole book as calling a people, forming the identity and, and lives of a people in the gospel story. We then talked about how Paul sees prayer, the deep movement of God in a community as the driving force by which that gospel message roots deep in our lives. After that, we unpacked that gospel identity that Paul lays out for us. He calls the new humanity and its many implications for our lives. This new humanity, Paul says, is to be God's family, kingdom, temple, the actualization of all his purposes in the world. And ultimately, this new humanity that is established by Jesus' triumph on the cross is called to, in chapter 5, verse 1, follow God's example by walking in the way of love, just as Christ gave himself for them. Now, as Paul develops this message throughout the book, there is a subtle theme that arises that's very easy to miss, but that I believe is vitally important if we're going to understand what Paul is saying in Ephesians and what it means to be God's people as a whole. And it's that suffering is the improbable, unexpected means of God's mission. That suffering is the improbable, unexpected means of God's mission. Ultimately, what we're going to see is that becoming the family kingdom of temp temple of God will inevitably lead the new humanity to the way of the cross that is suffering love. And I believe Paul models it in his exemplary life and the way he wants to share what it means to be the new humanity with the people. So why don't you guys turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. That's where we're going to be in today. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. We'll read the whole passage together, and then I'll unpack some of it for you. Chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. The word of the Lord. Alrighty. Let me show you how I see this passage organized. And up on the screen here, um, you're going to see my little diagram or outline of where I see this, the, the train of logic going. Paul begins by introducing himself as a prisoner, which is a really interesting way to introduce yourself. I don't know if you had a LinkedIn profile. I don't know if that's really what you'd put on your resume. I'm a prisoner. 
but he does. He seems to think that there's some importance to that, and that's something we shouldn't just gloss over. He then, in verses two through six, summarizes the mystery of the gospel that he says is that Gentiles are shares in the promises of Israel fulfilled in Christ, which is basically just fancy words by saying the new humanity is made up of all people, not just ethnic Israel, which Paul's been unpacking that theme this whole time. And then right smack dab in the middle, we see in verses seven through nine, Paul sharing his own mission, what God has called him to and how God has called him to be a participant in what he's been doing to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. He then summarizes the mission of the church by saying, through the church, this is how this revelation or this mystery is going to be known. The church that was made by this mysterious gospel is going to now make known the gospel to the world. And then finally, he ends with this really perplexing line in verse 13. Therefore, I ask you not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. He emulates the upside-down kingdom of Jesus in his own suffering and calls it their glory. Now, it's really easy to get lost in the jargon of what's going on here, these like big fancy words and the long paragraphs. But fascinatingly, it's the outer two sections that I want to focus on today. We see Paul summarizes the gospel. He shares his own testimony. He summarizes how the church should do likewise. But it's almost all apexing to that last verse, therefore. Therefore, do not be discouraged because of my sufferings for you. He's just repeated all that he's already said, and it accumulates up to, therefore, do not be discouraged because of my sufferings, and he calls his sufferings your glory. So, sandwiched between these three points is, or the bread on the outside of the sandwich, is this underlying subtle reality that Paul is writing these words as a suffering prisoner. And all of your mouths should have just dropped to the floor. (laughs) At the beginning, he addresses himself as a prisoner. He then ends with the suffering that he calls glory. And again, it's quickly glanced over, and it's just fascinating that he chooses to point this out. It seems as if him representing Christ in his own mission, is suggesting that their mission as the new humanity to make God's wisdom known, this mysterious gospel, may very well also lead them in the same direction or down the same path as the suffering Paul. And that is not something to be avoided, he says, but rather something that is actually their glory. That suffering may very well just mean the means of God's mission. And if that's the case, then it has profound, uh, profound implications on the message of Ephesians as a whole, but also what it means to be God's people. So a few points I want to bring out. The most baffling yet beautiful reality of the Christian faith is that it, is fundamentally, it fundamentally stands upon a God who suffers and bleeds and dies. That is just profound if you stop and think about it. There's no other God like it. Christians put their faith in a dead God. Let me say that again. Christians put their faith in a dead God. And that lies at the crux of his mission to redeem all things. Author Martin Hengel has a short book on the history of crucifixion in the ancient world. It's gruesome book. I'll spare you the details. And he says in the book, a crucified Messiah 
son of God, must have seemed a contradiction to anyone, a Jew, Greek, Roman, barbarian, whoever it is, whoever was asked to believe such a claim, it would certainly have been thought of offensive and even foolish. Thus, it makes sense that when post-resurrection Christians went around the Roman world proclaiming Jesus is Lord, the suffering, crucified Messiah, it's no wonder they were ridiculed, mocked, and even persecuted. Up on the screen, you're going to see a picture that's going to be very confusing and look weird. This is an ancient picture called the Aleximenos Graffito. It's a piece of Roman artwork that was found in a plaster wall in Rome, and it's estimated to have been carved around the year 200 AD. The image seems to show a young man worshiping a crucified donkey-headed figure, insinuating that Christians, in all their foolishness, worship a silly God likened to that of a donkey. He's weak. He dies. He's put to death. The Greek inscription below the words approximately translate to Aleximenos worships his God, indicating that the artwork was meant to mock a Christian named Aleximenos. It makes sense that during the time, Christians were persecuted, ridiculed, and mocked. Yet, fascinatingly, the writers of the New Testament, including Paul, who writes Ephesians, as a suffering prisoner of Christ, affirm time and time again that it is this baffling event that brings salvation to the whole world, that God chose what was foolish in the eyes of men to become the means by which all would be saved. That suffering is the improbable and unexpected means of God's mission. But not simply the way God in and of himself fulfills his own mission, but likewise how his people are invited to participate in that mission as well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which I feel like you guys have just been getting so much Dietrich Bonhoeffer lately, but I don't know of anyone who has a better quote on suffering in the church than, than Bonhoeffer. Many of you are reading him on Sunday mornings. He is a German pastor and theologian during World War II. His context matters a lot when you read him, but he spoke adamantly regarding what it means to follow Christ in a culture of compromise and injustice. Bonhoeffer saw many of his Christians, Christian friends grow complicit to the rise of Nazism, and he saw it imperative for the church to hold fast to its identity, even if it meant suffering at the hands of oppressors to avoid compromise. Bonhoeffer was eventually martyred, but in one of his most famous works, he writes this. It's kind of a long quote. We put it up on the screen for you, uh, I just, it, but it's worth every, every word. Here's what he says. The image of God is the image of Christ crucified. It is to this image that the life of the disciples must be conformed. In other words, they must be conformed to his death. The Christian life is a life of crucifixion. This is the suffering of Christ, which all disciples on earth must undergo. When Christians are exposed to public insult, when they suffer and die for his sake, Christ takes on visible form in his church. His life on earth is not finished yet, for he continues to live in the lives of his followers. The church bears the human form, the form of Christ in his death and resurrection. The church in the first place is his image. And through the church, all her members have been refashioned in his image too. In the body of Christ, we are become Christ. Suffering is the means of God's mission. 
not just for God, but for God's people as well, who are given an identity and calling to be his image, to be his physical body in the world. And so, in Ephesians, Paul likens his sufferings, his imprisonment, for the gospel's sake as glory. It seems as if he is trying to reframe, flip upside down their perspective on suffering as a whole. He lays out this vision of the gospel, how it forms a people, how the people are invited to live in this new calling. And then as an experienced follower of Jesus, he tells them, this is where that same gospel led me. And that is where the glory of God is most fully expressed. I can imagine Paul saying something like, don't be fooled. What you might think is weak, what you might think is foolish, is actually the means by which God's glory is revealed. How might you ask? Well, without the cross, we could never have imagined the depth and seriousness of what it means that God is love. That is why it's both baffling and beautiful. Jürgen Moltmann says if God were really incapable of suffering, he would also be incapable of loving. If God were really incapable of suffering, he would also be incapable of loving. Suffering and love go together because true love, that's wielding the good of another at the expense of yourself, requires that one take the potential consequences of others' needs. A suffering God is a powerful God because a suffering God is love. And in the same way, a suffering church is a powerful church because a suffering church is love. I think that's why Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 summarizes the call to new humanity as follow God's example and walk in the way of love just as Christ gave himself, that they are to give themselves as Christ gave themselves. I think that's also why Paul's vision of marriage in chapter 5 is that husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for them. I think that's also why Paul prays in chapter 3 that they would understand the height and depth and width of God's love, that they would know the depth and reality of his suffering love, and if they were to know it deep down in their core, they would go do likewise. I think it's also why in chapter 2 when Paul talks about how the new humanity was formulated by Christ's death, he says that it was um, through the cross by which he put to death their hostility, that this great act of reconciliation happened through death. I think it's also why Paul closes his letter in chapter 6, verse 20. He says, I'm an ambassador in chains. And he asks them to pray for him. But fascinatingly, he doesn't ask the Ephesians for him to be released, to pray for his release from prison. It's not what he asks for. Rather, he asked that they would continue making known the mystery of the gospel, that through his status as a prisoner, he would make known God's glory. He doesn't see his status as a source of shame, but rather honor in sharing Christ's sufferings. And so all throughout Ephesians, in a very subtle way, we are invited to believe the preposterous claim that suffering is the improbable and unexpected means of God's mission, and that we, as a new humanity, are invited to participate in that as well. The inevitable conclusion to becoming the new humanity is to embody Christ's suffering love and the totality of our lives. And if we take that, if we take our identity seriously, this is where it will eventually lead us as it led the prisoner Paul. 
So, in, very quick, in a very quick way, what might this look like for us in the coming months and years as Missio Dei Tempe? Well, first, I would like to be honest about a tension that I feel around the topic of suffering. I don't feel as if we are always the right people to say what it means to be a church that reflects Christ's suffering love. Not us specifically as Missio Dei Tempe, but just because our culture we live in an incredibly comfort-driven culture, and I fear at times our vision of suffering is really reduced, or it's just generalized to, like, discomfort. When Christians in the majority world are persecuted, even martyred in hostile contexts. And so I feel like this is a topic where, rather than me giving you, like, here's three steps to becoming a suffering church, I feel like this is a topic where we need to just go learn from others. We would benefit to receive and learn from people of different contexts and places. I think we must practice learning from others in the wisdom of brothers and sisters who have faithfully followed Jesus in difficult times and places. Second, in more practical terms, I will offer you a practice. The ancient spiritual discipline of fasting is a bodily act that is allowing yourself to go without something, particularly food, as a way of standing in solidarity with Christ who emptied himself for us. It was breathed out of and, and popularized out of the monastic tradition that was in a Christendom culture that saw themselves as needing to participate in suffering because everyone was Christian and they weren't really suffering. So what do we need to do? We need to practice fasting. Fasting is a discipline that connects us in a very tangible way to suffering, prayer, and God's love. It trains us spiritually and physically to willingly enter into places of suffering and difficulty and hardship. And lastly, I believe the call in Ephesians and the whole of the biblical story is never to suffer alone. The call to suffering, the call to pick up one's cross is always done in the context of community. When we suffer, we suffer together. And that's a point of encouragement for us to walk out of this room with. The church is invited to bear one another's sufferings and support one another as the family kingdom temple of God, both challenging and encouraging each other to more faithfully express that identity in our lives, to be Christ's image, as Bonhoeffer says. And so I think it's only fitting that we spend time leaning into that community. We gather here as a community, as an expression of the family kingdom temple of God, and I think we need each other. I don't necessarily have all the answers as to what that might look like for us, I think we need a process and dialogue that together. So I would like um, to put some reflection questions on the screen. I don't encourage you just with maybe three or four people around you um, to be incredibly honest about the complexities of what this might look like or the challenges um, of what it might look like to be a community of Christ's suffering love in, in Missio de Tempe, in the city, in, in this world. So, uh, Cole, would you mind putting up the questions? Thanks. There's three questions. I'll give you guys about five minutes to chew on it, and then I'll bring us back and lead us to the table. All righty. I hate to cut off our conversation short. I would love to hear um, just some of the things that came to mind, not right now, but just as the weeks and months go on how we can step into more fully being a people of suffering, love in our context. Um, so let's uh, go to the table. N.T. Wright says the cross is the surest, truest, and deepest window 
on the very heart and character of the living and loving God. So just a moment, I'm going to invite you to this table where we celebrate the baffling reality that God dies, but also the beautiful expression of love displayed through profound grace. And so, would you please stand and recite the mystery of our faith with me? And it is truly a profound, a baffling and beautiful mystery, but a mystery that we are also invited into as a people as well. So say it with me. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Come and receive from the God of suffering love.